Hello, everyone, and welcome to Geoversive's Earth Intelligence Podcast. I'm Don Shelby. I'm joined by my colleague Joseph Robertson, founder of Geoversive and director of Citizens Climate Lobby International and lead strategist for the Resilience Intel Climate Smart Finance Initiative. And we're honored to have as our guest today the world-renowned scientist in the field of climate science, Dr. Michael Mann. He's the Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State, with joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environment Institute. He's the director of the Penn State Earth System Science Center. He was lead author on the Observed Climate Variability and Change chapter of the IPC's third scientific assessment report in 2001. As a result of his contributions, he shares in the honor of being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He received the Stephen H. Snyder Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication. He's authored more than 200 peer-reviewed and edited publications, countless op-eds, and five books, the latest of which is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. He was elected to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences in 2020, and I've known him for a long time, and I responded to his tweet of being honored by the National Academy with my usual, my man, two ends. Hi, Mike. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Uh, thank you, Don. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Let's begin our discussion with the new climate wars by going back to the old ones. We first met in December of 2009 at the American Geophysical Union Conference in San Francisco, and just a month before in that year, cyber terrorists had hacked the University of East Anglia's climate research unit, Phil Jones's unit, and made emails and data shared by climate scientists public. Only a few garnered much attention, and they were framed by friend and foe alike as casting doubt on the legitimacy of the science of climate change, and it was dubbed Climate Gate. In the end, no one found anything that would suggest the science was wrong or being manipulated, and in the end, no one was held responsible. But it was a shot heard around the world, in particular in Copenhagen, where that month COP15 was being held. And as I remember standing in that room with many of the scientists who had been exposed by their emails, in the maelstrom of negative reporting, Phil Jones was suffering greatly, and if ever there was a need for a science communicator, that was the moment, and that's when I remember you stepping up. And I know that you're a great science detective, but as a crime detective, I am uh, interested in whether you ever discovered who was behind that terrorist attack. It is unlikely we'll ever know uh, who exactly stole those emails, but uh, there are some clues now. If you look at who was involved, uh, we know that there were servers in Russia and Saudi Arabia that were involved. We know that WikiLeaks um, was uh, involved in hosting the stolen emails, Julian Assange. Uh, so, you know, here we have stolen emails, um, WikiLeaks, Julian Assange. Assange uh, used to um, try to hijack an important political event, in this case, the, uh, the Copenhagen Summit of 2009. But you could be forgiven for thinking that we might have been talking about the 2016 presidential election because it was the exact same MO and some of the same players were involved. And, and there's you know, some reason to suspect that Russia, which is a petrostate um, that has engaged in, in cyber crimes um, to try to elect politicians who they think will be favorable for them, there, there's reason to think that they may well um, have had a, a hand in, in this particular episode. Uh, a lot of the, you know, again, the um, the, the evidence, uh, the servers that were used, um, the organizations that were involved. And we know that uh, Vladimir Putin 
um, uh, sees climate change as something that will not negatively impact uh, Russia. That's that's wrong, but um, there is this naive belief that it might somehow be good, uh, you know, warming Siberia, gr- le- uh, leading to longer growing seasons. But more important than that, their main asset is the fossil fuels that are still buried beneath their ground. And, you know, there was a half trillion dollar oil deal between the Russian fossil fuel company Rosneft and ExxonMobil um, to develop uh, much of the um, uh, the oil uh, in Siberia and other fossil fuel reserves in uh, the um, in Russia that was um, uh, that was, in fact, um, blocked uh, by the sanctions that the Obama administration had put on Russia for their involvement in in, uh, U- in the Ukraine. Uh, and one of the first things that happened at the Republican uh, platform, uh, the, the Republican convention uh, in, in uh, the lead up to uh, the election was uh, Paul Manafort, a name some of you will remember, um, actually striking out language in the Republican platform uh, calling for sanctions against Russia. So it's pretty clear that uh, Russia saw uh, Trump um, and, uh, and and Trump's people as, as favorable to their agenda to get rid of these sanctions so that they could I- indeed move ahead with this half trillion dollar oil deal with ExxonMobil. And who did Donald Trump end up appointing to be his secretary of state? None other than ExxonMobil CEO Rex Tillerson. So uh, my suspicion is that Russia probably had a hand as one of the leading petrostates in, in the world that has used cyber weaponry to try to, again, shape global politics in their favor. Uh, in the end, as you allude to, you know, there was nothing there that called into question the, the science of climate change. But it took years for those investigations that vindicated um, all of us to play out. And in the meantime, the, the forces of inaction, as I call them in the book, the inactivists or the forces of inaction, and that's petrostates, that's fossil fuel companies and politicians and media outlets uh, that are promoting their agenda. It was very useful uh, for them in at the very least slowing down this transition from fossil fuels to towards renewable energy every year that we remain addicted to fossil fuels they make billions of dollars of additional profits and and that's what it's about at this point is just delaying that transition so they can continue to make as much money as they can and um and they can get at as much of that um you know fossil fuel asset as they have in your book when we talk about the new climate wars, you use a lot of interesting words, urgency, agency, and you use a lot of words that begin with D. And (laughs) I would like you to talk about that because I know Joe is going to have lots to ask you about all of these things because as a master of communication himself and on finance, he's going to be able to see how these wars are being fought, not with howitzers and bunker-busting bombs, but uh, guerrilla tactics. That's right. Yeah, you know, I'm a sucker for alliteration, and and I use it in the book uh, because, of course, you know, the old climate war um, that is really coming to an end was the outright denial that climate change is real, that it's happening. Um, And for decades, fossil fuel interests and those promoting their agenda uh, attacked uh, the science, including the the iconic uh, hockey stick graph that my 
uh, co-authors and I published uh, two decades ago that became sort of a centerpiece in the case for human influence on climate. Um, it was uh, subject to uh, attacks, as all the scientific evidence was. Uh, here's the thing. We've reached the point now where people can see the impacts of climate change playing out in real time in their everyday lives in our newspaper headlines, uh, on our television screens. You can't deny that it's happening anymore. And so the forces of inaction, they haven't given up, um, but they've shifted tactics. The old climate war, the, the, the effort to deny that climate change is even happening, to attack and undermine um, public faith and, and the faith of poly, uh, policymakers in, in the scientific evidence, that's come to an end. But they're not rolling over. Uh, they have simply turned to uh, an insidious a new array of tactics in their efforts to thwart uh, progress, to block this transition off fossil fuels. And that includes of not so much denial, or at least not hard denial, but softer forms of denial um, and delay or deflection trying to deflect attention away from the need for policy solutions, for systemic solutions, to individual behavior, as if it's just about you and me being more responsible in our everyday lives. So there's this effort to deflect and shift attention away from the need for systemic solutions, to take the pressure off of policymakers to actually implement policies that will collectively move us off of fossil fuels. There is doom-mongering and despair-mongering. Ironically, um, if the forces of inaction, if the inactivists can convince us it's too late to do anything about the problem, ironically, that potentially leads us down that same path of inaction as outright denial. And there is um, the uh, promotion of uh, sort of non, you know, uh, sort of pleasant sounding word soothing uh, sort of promises that sa that make politicians sound like they might be actually doing something, but in fact don't solve the problem uh, in a meaningful way. Whether it's geoengineering, trying to cover up the uh, warming effect of our, our carbon pollution by interfering with the global environment in some other way to try to offset that warming, or you know promising that the solution, that the path uh, towards uh, a fossil fuel free future is paved with natural gas as if a fossil fuel can somehow be the solution to a problem created by fossil fuels. So these are among the tactics um, that are being used in the new climate war. And the reason I wrote the book, um, you alluded to sort of this um, pairing of urgency and agency that I like to use. There is great urgency in acting, and we have to act now, but there is agency. We do still have time to act. And, and that's really important, again, because of the, the widespread sort of a doom and gloom that exists in some you know, sectors of the environmental community uh, that is leading people to disengage. Uh, we, we need to remain engaged. And that's really what my message is that, look, there are some obstacles that are being thrown in our path. And if we can clear away those obstacles, we can, in fact, finally see the action that we have worked so hard to ensure. I'm very concerned personally that our public space has become polluted with the misconception that all thoughts, no matter how random, no matter how hapless, no matter how baseless, are somehow equal. And therefore, if a thought is inconvenient, you can just reject it. So I think about those big projects like going to Saturn 
The optimist doesn't say, gosh, that's going to be really hard. Let's not worry about it. Let's not do it. Probably won't work out. The optimist says, let's do the best we can. Whatever the best is within the realm of possibility, we're going to aim for that. And then if something becomes impossible, you go to the next best thing within the realm of possibility. I say all of this because I wonder, do you feel, having been at the heart of these climate wars, having been standing right in the midst of the the scientific evidence itself, do you feel that people are being denied access to reality? They're being told not to aim for the best possible world. And ultimately, they're being robbed of their personal sovereignty. Uh, I like to point out that in the world of climate change, we were dealing with these problematic concepts decades before they became fashionable. And to some extent, the war on science, the war on the scientific evidence of climate change, and the idea that we had to entertain uh, viewpoints about the science from those with an agenda, um, who do not come at it from from a scientific uh, standpoint, um, who are simply seeking to muddy the waters and to confuse uh, the public discourse. The idea that that somehow deserves to be on an equal footing with the word of the scientific community for too long, uh, and this is something I know Don and I have talked about before, uh, for too long uh, there was a tendency by uh, media outlets to entertain false balance when it comes to climate climate change, the idea that you had to have a climate change skeptic up there with a, uh, with a mainstream climate scientist to give both views, to provide both sides as if there are two equal sides to a matter, to a proposition, which is ultimately based on data and logic and reason. And so that problematic framing was widespread within the climate discourse uh, for decades. And to some extent, I believe that that what was sort of a localized cancer um, it, it, when it came to the public discourse over climate change has now metastasized um, to our entire body politic. And we're seeing uh, many of those same flawed concepts and framings that we encountered decades ago um, when it, you know, with the climate wars, we're now seeing that sort of come to the surface of our entire uh, political discourse. Um, let's look at uh, what has played out over the last uh, year or so uh, with the pandemic, um, because many of uh, the prescriptions that were being provided by scientists, by public health uh, experts like Anthony Fauci, that we needed to be engaged in social distancing and, and mask wearing uh, because this was perceived as being inconvenient to the political agenda of Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump and his supporters were able to weaponize nearly half of our population into thinking things that simply are not borne out by the facts, that are not consistent with uh, the evidence. And here's what's so remarkable. We could see how deadly that anti-science was in real time. We could measure the toll of that science denial and human lives that have now reached into, you know, a, a half million or so here in the United States alone. Um, that toll w- was was directly measurable. And yet people were still 
resistant to, you know, what the science had to say. And I do think that that speaks to the way that science or anti-science, in fact, has now been weaponized by political forces in a way that doesn't just threaten our public discourse over climate, but our entire public discourse and our societal well-being. It's sort of, um, it's something that the great Carl Sagan warned about and, and feared uh, decades ago, and, and now it's actually come to pass. Um, there still is you know, an opportunity, as far as I'm concerned, to, to push back against this um, anti-scientific fervor. And I hope that maybe the, uh, you know, the, the pandemic and as we see how successful um, science will prove in having gotten us out of this pandemic, maybe there's finally an opportunity to have a reckoning and, and to maybe once again establish the rightful role of fact-based discourse and science um, in our politics. Now, you devote a whole section of one chapter, chapter nine, I think it is, on the changing face of pension funds, superannuation funds, yeah. sovereign funds, asset managers, in their decisions on where to place their clients' money under a fiduciary responsibility. Right. It's fascinating to us because Joe and I were in Oslo at the uh, Nobel Peace Prize uh, Summit on Solutions to Climate Change and in a room with people who controlled about $37.2 trillion worth of assets, and they all yeah. said, we'll take care of it. And I think you make that point with this quote, and I think it was in one of your tweets, that it may be banking and finance rather than the national governments that precipitate a climate action tipping point. Can yeah. you talk more about that? Sure. So um, it's just what you said. Uh, you know, sometimes... Uh, positive developments come from what might have seemed the most unlikely uh, of sources, right? A very conservative business community um, that uh, at times has been seen as antithetical to the cause of environmental sustainability. So it's somewhat ironic that it may in fact be the business community to an extent that really does get us past um, that that societal tipping point on climate change. And as you allude to, there, there are a number of reasons for that. And, and I do try to unpack that a bit in, in the book. Um, there's first First of all, what's known as transition risk, which is simply, look, if we decide that we have to leave most of these fossil fuels in the ground because the you know, effect of, of extracting them and burning them is deemed simply too dangerous, too costly to allow – well, that makes fossil fuel companies really bad investments because they have to leave most of their assets stranded. And so if we recognize that, um, then – and we recognize that we are going to transition. We already are transitioning um, from the age of fossil fuels to the age of uh, renewable energy and clean energy. You know, There are going to be winners and losers, and the fossil fuel industry is clearly one of the losers. So that makes fossil fuel companies um, a, a bad risk. But on top of that, as you already alluded to, Don, um, there's the issue of fiduciary responsibility. And, and this is something that I encountered in my meeting, my meetings with uh, superannuation fund managers down in Australia, which uh, has some of the largest superannuation funds in the world. And uh, when you talk to them, they do recognize um, that there is an element of fiduciary responsibility. It's their responsibility not to hurt their client. And if you destroy the, the planet that your client lives on and you destroy the future of the planet for the children and grandchildren of your client, that's not living up to your fiduciary responsibility. So I, I do think there is a sort of broader interpretation of fiduciary responsibility that is leading some of these fund managers to, to really now start to question uh, whether we should be continuing to invest 
in fossil fuels, in new fossil fuel infrastructure. And you see some of the big finance companies like BlackRock, uh, Bank of England, um, making you know, very public statements about how they are now really questioning whether they can continue to fund fossil fuel projects. That's a really big development. Um, that is a huge lever arm when it comes to uh, the the sort of gears um, in the political machinery and the economic machinery that will ultimately drive this transition. Prime Minister Boris Johnson of the United Kingdom, who will host the climate negotiations later this year, said to the United Nations Security Council that climate impacts are becoming so extreme that they will undermine human development, peace and security, and in his words, send shockwaves of instability around the world. And, you know, people talk about multiple breadbasket failure, which the uh, IPCC has warned of as a, okay. as a serious risk signal. And there's this question, if the data is showing us this, if the science is showing us this, and our experience of the world is showing us this, can we actually begin to tie scientific data into financial data systems, into the decision-making processes of governments so that they're carefully examining whether investments, public sector, private sector, development finance, so that they're carefully considering whether investments are going to build resilience across the board, not just within an institution or a balance sheet, but broader society-wide resilience, uh, or whether they're going to undermine resilience. And by doing that, begin to favor the things that are actually grounded in reality, the, the practices that are actually better. Yeah, absolutely. Not not only do I think it's possible, I think that the, the new administration, the Biden administration, is seeking to do that with many of the executive actions that uh, they announced a month ago. Um, you know, uh, for one thing, um, you know, uh, seeing climate policy now as not just something to be confined to the Department of Energy and, you know, the, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, but seeing climate policy now as something that must be integrated into every single sector of society every single department and agency, uh, including the, the Treasury Department. Um, and now you have uh, Janet Yellen, Yellen uh, the new Treasury Secretary, um, talking very seriously about um, the, the requirement that uh, companies disclose climate risk. And that will be a consideration uh, when it comes to uh, federal funding, funding and financing. Um, you see uh, a, an effort now to reevaluate the social cost of carbon um, and uh, it's sort of a measure, um, a very simple economic measure of how much damage, you know, the emission of carbon pollution into the atmosphere does. And the government, the federal government is required um, to actually um, estimate that damage and to incorporate that um, into its decision making. Of course, in, under the Trump administration, um, they, they, they minimized, they attempted to minimize um, those estimates. But the, uh, the, the Biden administration now um, is calling for a reevaluation. Um, there's some discussion of, you know, the possibility of a, a price on carbon uh, as high as $100 or $200 a ton uh, during the Obama years, uh, it was only about 40. Uh, their estimate was, I think, 30 or $40 uh, per ton. Uh, I believe ExxonMobil actually had a, a, an even higher estimate, uh, sh a shadow estimate of the price of carbon in their own planning documents, uh, closer to 60. Now we're talking 100 to 200. That makes a big difference. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Mann. The difference that carbon pricing can make in our politics and in our sustainability as a planet will be part of our next discussion as we continue to talk with Dr. Michael Mann, one of the world's foremost climate scientists. If you like Geoversive's Earth Intelligence, please keep us in mind and push us out on your social media. Let people know that this is a worthy discussion to listen to. I hope you're well, and I hope you stay well. This is Don Shelby thanking you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.